Bristol Unpacked is back. We're here with a new series, talking to a range of people from the first city of Bristol on loads and loads of different topics. We'll be talking to all kinds of people, some you may not even like, and they may not even like either. But it doesn't matter, we're here to have a broad conversation about the city and everything that's in it. So, enjoy. I would always naturally gravitate towards the more earthy, organic and authentic football clubs, of which this is is one. Um, so yeah, the, Bristol City aren't authentic, Tom. No comment. <laughs> um, I, I would always, I would have always chose Rovers over City if that was ever an option. Um, yeah. This for me is a is a um, like I said, it's a really authentic football club. It's a real clear identity. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this episode of Bristol Unpacked, it's all about football, off the field as well as on. It's Tom Gorridge, the brand new chief executive of Bristol Rovers Football Club. He is one of the youngest in his role in the country, has worked at Premier League clubs before and is seen as a face of modernity, bringing Bristol Rovers into the modern era. Some people see that as fantastic, others are slower to get the message and perhaps feel that some of the traditions are being lost at the club. We talk stadium, will it ever happen, controversy around the manager, Joey Barton, the chasm between Bristol Rovers and Bristol City and will that ever be bridged and what did happen with the supporters club and finally the future will bristol rovers ever become a championship club tom gorridge seems to think so i'm talking to you you're at the memorial stadium yep i'm currently in a box at the mem so i can see uh our brilliant pitch out the window and the sun shining so it's a it's a good day congratulations i just want to get out of the way first of all are you one of the youngest chief executives in the football league you must be i believe so yeah i mean um I don't have a list or I've not done any research into other people of similar ages, but yeah, it's been mentioned to me a few times that I must be. So uh, yeah, sure I am. How old are you now? Uh, 32. 32, you must be. Yeah. I mean, usually the job of a journalist is to research that type of thing, isn't it? (laughs) I I, I haven't either. Um, Let's just say you're one of the youngest, shall we? Uh, How's it been? Settling in? Busy, I expect? Yeah, it's been really good. It's been a busy few weeks. It feels like a lot longer already. Um, but, uh, but obviously I'd been here already, so, um, it's made the transition a lot easier because I already knew everybody and had an understanding sure. of where we are and, and what we wanted to do. But, um, no, it's been really good. And we'll have, uh, people listening. We'll have, you know, Gasser to listen in. We'll have football fans in the city, but we'll also have people that don't really know anything about football. Chief executive is essentially you oversee everything in the football club. Yes, the whole day-to-day operations of the club. So covers the football side and the, the non-football side. So everything from ticket sales to hospitality to transfers and, and the development of, of the first team. So, um, yeah, effectively, I'm, I'm ultimately responsible for the progress of the football club. And when you were a child, I think if I look back, you know, myself, and I know a lot of people sort of dreamed of being a, a professional footballer. Did you dream of being a football administrator? 
No. <laughs> um, no, I mean, ultimately, I think, like you, uh, my my dreams when I was a kid was to, to play professional football and, and think that's probably what I just assumed that I would do. Obviously, I wasn't, wasn't good enough to be able to do that, and I think what I'm doing now is probably a... Uh, a close second. Did you come close? Were you were you, were you a decent player? That's Not as bad. close as I'd liked. I wasn't I wasn't bad, but I was never um I, I was never at the point where it was a viable career option for me. So um okay. I quite quickly figured that out and obviously I went to, to university and got a business degree and I think um it, it always felt like it was my destiny to work in football. It was the only thing mm-hmm. I really had an interest in from when I was a kid. Um so um I think I probably would have ended up in this position whatever path I took but uh, yeah obviously it's been a, a quite <laughs> an accelerated journey so far to get to this point. You can study football administration and football business and stuff I think you did that yourself didn't you? My my degree was a, a standard business degree so it gives you obviously the skills to be able to operate and run a business of any kind. What I kind of quite quickly did was try to tailor that that knowledge to the thing that I had the, the biggest passion in, which was football. So um, I ended up doing a placement year at, at Portsmouth Football Club whilst I was studying and then stayed working there throughout my my final year. And effectively every every report, every assignment, every piece of work I had to do, I was referring it back to, to what I was doing on the ground at the club. So, um, yeah, the, the course was a generic one, but I kind of tailored it myself to to football as that was my interest and I ended up writing a dissertation on financial sustainability in football which which I got a first for so um Ooh. I think I think the stars were aligned quite quite early on and you're um you're part of this what's it called is it next generation yeah effectively it's young people the, the next generation of sporting leaders across all sports, so it might be media, it might be the commercial side, it might be a player or a coach. And effectively, the aim is to get the next generation of sporting leaders together at an early stage and and give them initially a, a year's programme to develop them. And then it creates a network ongoing that obviously I'm still very close to and speak regularly to people that were part of the first group. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? So you're very much part of this more modern face of of football um and the days of you know a chairman and a manager and sort of not much in between have kind of long gone haven't they um do you feel that um football you know has been on a rapid kind of journey in the last sort of 10 15 years in many regards to, to catch up with some other sports when it comes to sort of off the field governance and and kind of having some kind of sort of system in place yeah, I mean, I think society's changed a lot in that time as well. And when society changes, businesses need to change, sport needs to change, and everything needs to keep up. Obviously, football being a traditional game, it generally takes a little bit longer than than most sometimes to to make some of those changes. And I think that probably comes through um, a fear because ultimately the game's been successful for hundreds of years and particularly the last hundred years it's been extremely successful you so know, and a tradition that, isn't it it's a tradition yeah, that, that fabric, tradition is, yeah yeah and that tradition is obviously one of one of the, the the biggest factors in that success it's the thing that that gives it longevity it's the effectively the power it's passing that support on from generation to generation is the thing that makes football so special mm-hmm. and so it's a constant balancing act i think to maintain and, and respect that tradition whilst trying to then modernise and change the approach and keep up with, with wider society. And I guess it's tricky to bring everybody along 
on that journey because you know obviously football fans are you know from the cradle to the grave aren't they of all kind of ages and there will be people that will feel cynical or skeptical about changes to something that you know they love you know their their football club is you know in in their core identity of, of who they are yet others will feel this is about time you know some sort of changes um how long have you been at the club now uh, four and a bit years. So I four joined years, in yeah. uh, September 2017. And and you definitely, and I've seen this from, from being a journalist, you've kind of embraced, particularly on Twitter and sort of social media, have, have been almost like the public face of the club a bit and engaging with fans. And when you came into the football club and you've worked, um, you just said Portsmouth, I know you've also worked at Brighton. Um, you know, it, it, Brighton were in the Premier League then, is that right? Yeah, so I worked at Portsmouth, Cardiff and Brighton all in the Premier League. So you came with experience, you came with an understanding of, of what a progressive modern football club looks like. Be honest, when you came through the door at Bristol Rovers, did you did you see a modern football club and how it was run? No, and I think that was the attraction um, from the start. I was, I was excited about being here. I was excited about the opportunity and the scale of the opportunity. And I think it was quite clear from from day one that there were some opportunities to make some improvements and We've tried to be relatively aggressive in how we've we've approached those and and made some changes that I think have, have been really well received. So yeah, the, I don't think club was particularly modern at that stage. We're, we're arguably still not now, but it was trying to have a, a bit of a fresh approach and look at some things with fresh eyes and and make changes to improve the experience for supporters, to improve the way that we operated as a business, and and ultimately to improve the football club, which which we've tried to do. And you're obviously in the, the sort of top dog seat now where you will be, you know, held to a higher account of scrutiny or have to sort of answer tougher questions. But my sense is a lot, some of the modern changes and some of the things around fan engagement, around ticketing, the club shop, the bar experience. Am I right in thinking you've been quite core and quite central to that anyway in your previous positions? Yeah, they, they were all things that, that we've changed over this past four years. They were things that we identified as, as opportunities early on and and wanted to drive improvements in. So, yeah, that was part of the initial review and um, part of the changes we've made over that four-year period, all those things are things that, that have driven through, obviously, myself and, and the departments that I, that I ran in my previous role. So, um, yeah, I think I've I've tried to where that responsibility from the start previous role was commercial director and I think everybody who works in football is a it's a privileged position and we all have a responsibility to to make improvements and drive the the football club and the business forward so I've tried to do that from from day one and you have no problem with that I mean there were you know we name names but there were some sacred cows in, in the football club that when you came in and made some decisions in the club demonstrated that you could be quite ruthless effectively some of them were were shown the door yeah i mean the the easiest decision to make is to not make one at all ultimately i think uh football is an emotional game but in order to to operate at our highest possible level on occasions we have to take the emotions out of the decisions and make the right decision for the club and that's what we've tried to do all the way through and ultimately that is the only question that matters does this make us better and if the answer is yes then we do it regardless if someone's been there for 30 40 years and is part of the furniture and the fabric and the culture and the tradition of the club 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to be sensitive to that. We don't we don't want to needlessly go around and, and upset people, but no one person, myself included, is is bigger than the football club, and the football club has to progress regardless of any individual. So um, uh, obviously we want everybody to come on the journey, and we'll always try and find ways for people to do that. But mm. the decision is, does this make the football club better? And if the answer is yes, then we have to take those decisions no matter how difficult they are. Do you think the fan base are divided in their perception of some of the changes or their perception of you individually? Could that be to do with maybe age? Uh, I don't know whether they're divided. I've always felt incredibly supported here. I've always felt like the decisions that we've made have been well received by the vast majority of people. There's there's very few that I think um, you could say were either the wrong decision or um, have split opinion to a significant level, whenever we make any change of any kind, we're never going to, um, it's never going to meet everybody's standards or expectations because we have a, a diverse fan base with wide ranging expectations and yeah. requirements. Ultimately, what we have to do is make the right decisions for the vast majority of people. Sure. And I think that's what we've tried to do. And, and like I said, I think they've been, been very well supported. I guess, I guess my kind of point, I suppose, is that the, the and I think this is a journey that other football clubs have, have been on as well, and probably continue to, to be so, that often football clubs do have, um, you know, people that have been attached to the club, that are fans of the club, working at the club. Obviously, we're in a slightly different era now where we have uh, an off-field staff team, probably of people that aren't Bristol Ravers fans or didn't grow up in the city. Um, how would you respond to some people that would feel that it's losing a bit of, a bit of heart and soul and it feels like... <sighs> A kind of uh, there are careerists and sort of mercenary football administrators at Bristol Rovers. Um, I mean, people could potentially put me into that category. I think it's it's something that I've I've had said to me quite a few times since I've been here, which is that um, that this is a stepping stone, and and I think my response to that is that. Everywhere else I've been is is a stepping stone for this this opportunity. This for me is is the pinnacle. Really, is I wanted to be involved in a club of this size with this much potential to to affect change. I think um, it's a common misconception, and this goes across the board that um, people have to have, have supported a club their whole life to understand it. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think what we want in the building is is people that generally want to make the football club better and have the skills and experience to do that. Can it potentially blind your objectivity? I think it can. I mean, being a fan. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like we've discussed, I've worked at four clubs now, and I think if I think back to those four clubs, the if if you ask me to to look at the people that had had the biggest positive impact on the clubs that I've worked at, very rarely are those people that were fans of the club in the first place now that may be because like you said they're clouded because there's so much emotion in football and that can affect your decision making process and sometimes the best decisions are made without um without kind of being overrun by that emotion but also i think um there is an instance or there's a there's been instances where some people that are working within football clubs are doing it because they love the club and not because they've got the right skills to be to be operating the role that they're doing. Although the one element of the football club that I would say does have that is community trust, isn't it? With with Adam Tutton, who is a local boy, he's a Rovers fan. So is it also important to, to keep some of that as well, that you don't completely get the baby out of the bathwater a bit? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, 
if somebody is a fan and also has the right skills and experience, then that's utopia. That's exactly what we want in the building. Somebody who who understands that journey and and can help us go on the next journey. But I think we need to get away from um, giving roles to people just because they're a fan. Yeah. But but what we're looking to do is make sure that we get the right knowledge and experience in the buildings first. Um, Regardless. And 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 if people are supportive of the football club as well, then that's that's a bonus. So you push back. I mean, I think Man United are going through a lot at the moment. They're almost being criticised for not having enough people that are connected to the city and to the club. You push back at any suggestion of football being run by heartless, you know, faceless administrators. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's a common misconception. Um, uh, I think if you speak to anybody that's here, regardless of where they were born or who they grew up supporting, the first result they look at on a Saturday if they're not at the stadium will be Rovers. It's so easy to get completely wrapped up, but this this for me is, is the be-all and end-all. It's... Who do you look for, Tom? Who Obviously, you know, you look for Rovers now, but did you? who did you grow up supporting? I'm a Brighton fan originally. So, okay. um, would yeah. you still say you were a Brighton fan? If... Uh, I would. Um, I'll go to the odd game every now and again, but um, uh, Rovers really is the only thing that matters. Um, sure. But Brighton are a really good example of actually, if you want to look at on and off the field success of building a football club to get into the Premier League, and you know, you could argue. Why should Brighton get there than either of the Bristol football clubs, really? So they must be doing something right. Yeah, and I think having worked there and Cardiff similarly, I think the, there's not really a lot between the three clubs. I think Rovers, Cardiff, Brighton have all got similar-sized fan bases. They've all predominantly spent the majority of their history in the, the mid to lower leagues. Um Lots of games against each other, similar sized crowds organically. I mean, Brighton's attendances at the Wolfdean were smaller than than what we're seeing here at, at Rovers now. The big change in both of those clubs' history is is obviously getting a new stadium and uh, enabling themselves to to monetize that better, drive bigger crowds, and and develop the business side, which can then support the on-pitch development. We're going to move on to the, to the stadium, which is obviously a big, big issue uh, shortly. But on that thing around, uh, around, I guess, coming from outside the city, having worked in other football clubs that have, have gone on into the Premier League, the perception outside of Bristol, I mean, I I, made, I did a tweet a little while back, so, you know, occasionally I'd like to just sort of rock the boat a bit, saying about Bristol being the graveyard of football ambition. Traditionally, what's what's the... What's the perception of the city, football-wise? Because all of us think, oh, we're underachieving. We could be so much more. I was speaking to some other people who say, well, I don't know, really. Don't really I, don't, I don't really see Bristol as being a, a football city like I would other big cities in the country. Um, I mean, again, using those same examples we've just used, I don't think anybody will look into Brighton or Cardiff and think they're football cities. Obviously, Cardiff's predominantly rugby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Brighton, I don't think, has been a, a hotbed for footballing success at any point. Arts and music, isn't it, really, I suppose? Exactly. Yeah. So that, And very similar, again, to Bristol in terms of the culture and, and how the city's perceived. So, I mean, ultimately, the only way you get perceived as being a hotbed of football is by having success on the pitch, and that's where the gap's been. Um, yeah. There's not been a sustained period where either side's been in the top tier for, for a huge amount of time and been seen as a top-tier club as opposed to a club playing in the top tier. Um, and ultimately, I think that's the only thing that, that changes that perception. Yeah, sure. So success on the field, people kind of, I mean, but you do need uh, the building blocks 
off the field to, as you just alluded to about the stadium and around income generation and getting the right scouting network and the right structures in place to allow that to drip onto the field. So on that then, which which comes first, the the on or the off, or, or is it sort of both at the same time? Well, I mean, there's there's examples of both. I mean, if you look at look at Bournemouth again as a similar example, yeah, they they purely invested in in the team on the pitch. Um, I think people perceive Bournemouth as a as an underdog story that they they spent millions and millions of pounds. Well, they got an, is he Russian, their owner, or Eastern European? Isn't he? Yeah, millionaire, so they, um, billionaire. Yeah, yeah, and and they they obviously invested heavily in on the on pitch side. Yeah, um, don't have the stadium infrastructure to be able to monetize, but took took the risk. Um, Brighton and Cardiff were the other way around in that they invested in the infrastructure first and then everything else came came afterwards. So mm-hmm. um, there's no right or wrong way to do things. But obviously there's different challenges at each club and in each location that that kind of affect the journey that that, that club's on. When I first sort of started watching sort of Rovers, went with my dad to Eastfield and was old enough to go to Twitter my own and then on to Memorial Stadium. In those formative years of the kind of late 80s and the 90s, there wasn't really, um, and even into 2000s really, there wasn't that much difference between the Bristol City and Bristol Rovers on the field and really even off the field. Would it be fair to say that there's quite a big sort of chasm between both football clubs now on and off the field? Um, well, yeah, I mean, particularly on it, we're obviously uh, two leagues apart at the moment, which is is uh, a reasonable jump. Um, and, and I think they're probably, in reality, uh, about a decade ahead of us in terms of their progressions that they've made and obviously the developments they've made to the stadium, which enable them to to operate at a different level than, than we can within the MEM. Um, but I think it's probably a fair assumption that organically the, the clubs are of a similar size. I think they're, they're in the same boat as some of the clubs we've already mentioned, the likes of, of Brighton, Cardiff, um, that have always competed in, in the kind of mid to, to bottom ends of, of the professional leagues in this country. And it's only really when you unlock the infrastructure that you can then see the full potential. And I think that's kind of where we are at the moment, obviously. Brighton played uh, in front of smaller crowds at the the Withdean Stadium than, than what we are currently at the Mem, mm-hmm. um, and Rovers attendances historically until the infrastructure change were were comparable. So um, ultimately, that's that's where we are. We need to make improvements in terms of what we've got, but um, the aim is to move up to move up the leagues, get to at least the Championship, and, and see what we can do. Yeah, and there's been criticisms of the of identity. There have been for much of the success in terms of the stadium and in terms of being an established championship side, there have been criticism from the city fan base for losing some of that identity with the whole Bristol sport thing, you know, which brings in basketball and, and rugby, women's football and badminton. And, and I'm sure they're expanding into other areas. Is that something that Bristol Ravers would look to do? There's no ambition for us to expand into any other sports. I think that authenticity comes from being a, a football club. Uh, and a traditional football club and um, living and breathing that, the, the family club values and the community values that we've already spoken about is is the most important part of our identity. The kit launch that we did this year was focused on um, the diversity of our fan base and of, of celebrating everything that's great about Bristol. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw fans from all different backgrounds, all different ages represented in that. And that for me is is at the core of what the football club's about. So, um, and it's yeah. an untapped market, actually. If you think about it in, in terms of um, at both both football clubs in in the city, and I would probably say um, 
that Rovers, because of their history and, and geographical, you know, with Eastfield where it was, probably should be the club to be better positioned perhaps than City to gauge more effectively with the black and ethnic minority communities in the city that predominantly live in that inner city, St. Paul's, Eastern, Lawrence Hill area, that are football mad. We're still not seeing that. I think it's sort of like 0.5% in both clubs. You know, we're in a city with 20% minorities. It's, I guess, if that, is that a failure of, of football clubs over the decades not to engage effectively? And, and how can we do that better? I mean, well, that's a big question. If we knew the answer, then I think we've probably seen it more dramatically across other clubs in the country. I think it's not just a, a Bristol issue. I think that's probably a national one and it probably stems from the fact that historically, particularly going back to the 70s, football wasn't always the most welcoming of environments for people yeah. to come and watch football. And ultimately that is the polar opposite of what we want to be. We want everybody to come to the stadium and feel welcome and feel a part of the family that is Bristol Rovers Football Club. You're right, it is, it is a kind of national issue. Then obviously there's the associations in the 70s and the 80s with the far right in some football clubs. Do you still feel that, that we have to break down some of those sort of barriers and mental sort of perception barriers a bit? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is is perception. Um, I think there's also still issues in society that probably play a part in some of these challenges. I don't think... Um, society is perfect and football generally is a representation of of wider society mm. and ultimately I think there's a lot of this is down to trust and and fans of all backgrounds having the trust that when they come to the stadium that they will be welcomed and looked after and and that that trust obviously has to be built up over a period of time um so we'll we'll deal with any issues that do occur within the stadium as robustly as as we can do there has been a handful of incidents and and the club have been quite robust in their response. Yeah, yeah, and and those instances are quite quite wide ranging. And ultimately, when you're talking about having large numbers of people together in a space, again, when I say football represents society, I think you see that in fan bases. There's always an element of people, like there would be an element of people in in a city centre that don't mm. hold the values that are important to us. And I think what's what's important in tackling that is making sure that the values that are important to us are made clear and that anybody that doesn't hold those same values is is dealt with robustly and, and is either given a, a a ban or is given the tools to get the education that they need to understand why we hold those values dear and what the implications of that are. So um we've 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 worked quite heavily in that area and like I said we've we've collaborated with the community trust with the fans for diversity campaign and with some other groups to make sure that we're kind of leading the way and doing the right things but ultimately it has to be a long-term approach you can't just flick a switch and say okay now this is where we are and and have that trust inbuilt straight away it has to we have to walk the walk first of all yeah. um but ultimately I think this club in particular it's got a real clear identity. We are a family club at, at our core. We're a community club at our core. And that means um, doing the right things, even when they don't make commercial sense sometimes. Do you feel that then, Tom, that obviously there is, it, it, I always kind of liken it to the Everton-Liverpool thing a little bit, that um, there there is a different identity to both football clubs? I think there is. I, I think it's clear. I think it was clear to me before I even joined here but what the differences were and Obviously, being a, a football fan all my life, I would always naturally gravitate towards the more earthy, organic and authentic football clubs, of which this is, is one. Um, 
So you yeah, say Bristol City aren't authentic, Tom? No comment. <laughs> um, but I, I would always, I would have always chose Rovers over City if that was ever an option. Um, yeah. This for me is a is a um, like I said, it's a really authentic football club. It has a real clear identity. Sure. Um, let's talk stadium. Uh, if I, for those that don't know, you know, Rovers have been looking to, um, uh, you know, looking around for, well, for, ever since I've been supporting them really for um, somewhere to build a new stadium or the discussions about whether they redevelop a more stadium or not. There has been sort of recent development over a site uh, in St. Phillips at the old fruit market. Um, I don't know where we're at with that yet. There was an article in Bristol Live, I think in mid-December, beginning of December, saying that was closer as developers agree fruit market deal. I don't know how true that is or what where we are with that. But my, my question to you, Tom, would be just as a general sense, how confident on a scale of one to ten would you be that Rovers will build or redevelop a new stadium in the next, I would say, five years, ten years? I mean, ultimately, that's the aim. Um, we're quite vocal about the fact that that's what we're looking to achieve. I think it's been the aim for the football club for for decades now, like you alluded to, and it's not an easy puzzle to fix, otherwise somebody would have done it before now. Um, but ultimately, that is the main priority that I think, as we've kind of alluded to some of the other conversations we've had so far, that is the 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 kind of key factor in enabling the football club to take that step to the next level. So um, there's there's a real kind of clarity internally on what we want to achieve. And obviously the, the challenge is trying to unpick that and find a solution that, that works for the football club, not just for now, but but for generations to come. Could you give a mark out of 10? Uh, I mean... 10 years, say 10 years. Yes, I mean, I'd be disappointed if that didn't happen. Um, I, I think... Seven, uh, eight... I mean, you're putting numbers in my head. I mean, that, that is the aim. That's what we want to achieve. Yeah. And ultimately, if we haven't achieved that within the next 10 years, then I'll be extremely disappointed. How far down the road are we with Fruit Market? Um, I mean, we can't we can't comment on any specific sites or any specific discussions. That's not, um, not something that we're able to do within agreements that are in place. But like I said, the only thing we can say is that it is our number one ambition and we're doing everything we can to try and achieve that is it unhelpful sometimes when because i think it gets the fan base excited when there is an article um in an online media outlet uh, that kind of says things are developing that presumably isn't something that comes officially from the club yeah it's extremely unhelpful i think uh ultimately with all these things there are uh, numerous people involved and numerous complexities to every part of every discussion and there's also then externally a, a, a thirst for information and it's frustrating for us because um, we'd love to to go into detail of, of um, discussions that are being had but that's, they're, they're not helpful <laughs> um, it's not helpful for it to be in the public domain and as soon as it is able to be in the public domain then then we'll put it there and we'll explain where we are and, and what what the plans are but um, up until that point any discussions publicly really aren't aren't helpful for for the football club in general do you think people understand that though I know that in big development projects it's the same for the for the for the council and the mayor as well that will often push back and say we cannot comment on this because you know it's, it's a confidential agreements and as you say the contractual um, issues um, the average football fan probably with greatest respect in the world doesn't always understand that so, so can that message be put maybe perhaps a bit more clearly 
um, to the uh, fan base to understand I, that? I think historically with the club, in terms of recent history, I think there's been a, a, a fear probably of talking about it at all and not wanting to jeopardise conversations. Um, the, the general stance, and this isn't a football club stance, but in terms of any sort of development, is that as soon as anything is, is final and we're able to announce it, then we will do, um, given a, a play-by-play update on where we are isn't possible and I don't think it'll ever be possible Um, but getting the message across to fans that this is where we are I think is difficult ultimately I think the stance has been quite clear for a period of time now that the the main ambition for the football club is to improve the infrastructure we've already seen that with the development of the state of the training ground and the stadium is obviously a big part of those those aims Um, and as soon as we're able to to announce anything on that, then we will do. But in the meantime, any any speculation or media reports are extremely unhelpful. Mm, okay, uh, I mean, because you know, you saying you can't comment on it, but one of the recent articles sort of suggested that one of the reasons why um, the club pulled out of the the UE deal when President Well Al Qadi came in originally was because Rovers wouldn't be owning the stadium UE would, and it was about income generation. This article. Uh, start of December sort of makes the the, the um, makes the kind of the, the point that, that a new stadium Rovers won't necessarily own. Has that has the position changed in the club? I mean, you don't have to go into detail, but is has the position generally changed where we don't necessarily have to own it? Cause, no. Because I mean, the the position hasn't changed in that um, any development that the club makes needs to be for generations and generations of the football club to come. And in order for that to be the case, the club would always retain our commercial rights and any any changes of stadium. Because that's becoming that is more common than people realise. Not every there's lots of Premier League clubs that don't own their own ground. Yeah. Just jump in and tell you about the Bristol Cable and how you can become a member. For regular listeners who will be reaching for the fast forward button in their droves. For those that are new, Bristol Cable is a cooperative, uh, which means you can become a member a paying member each month and you can join in AGMs, meetings, sort of decision making and shaping how the media does stuff in the fair city of Bristol. So if you do want to get involved, do jump on the website, have a look and uh, you can become a member. Back to the chat. Um, let's talk about supporters. Uh, I think I said at the top around, you know, it, it's it's clear that you have a, um, you know, a, a kind of clear idea of how the football club um, engages with its supporters in a broader and, and, a, and a wider sense. It's been quite well reported that there has been some friction between the football club and the Bristol Rovers Supporters Club. This culminated in Jim uh, Chappell stepping down uh, and he said this, uh, the whole scenario follows a pattern in that it is the president's ambition to rid himself of all dissenting opinion in order to be loved by the fan base. And he goes on to list people, five managers, uh, host of directors, young pirates, Blue Diamond, a few other things, uh, basically making the point that he feels that any dissent is kind of quashed and people are pushed out the football club. Um, how would you respond to that? Um, <laughs> I don't think it's right for me to comment on specifics around that comment but what I can say is um, I've worked in in football for a long time now over a decade Um, and while is one of the most genuine loyal um, generous 
owners that exist within the game. Uh, he's invested a huge amount of money into the football club with the sole aim of making it better and no expectation of, of any return on that. He continues on a daily basis to look for ways to make the club better, to fund and invest our, our development, even though it's extremely difficult on, on the existing site. Um, and he deserves a huge amount of respect and credit for that. Ultimately, we're not, um, as a football club, against any form of feedback and any form of difference of opinion. Every every supporter is, is entitled to their own opinion and will mm-hmm. listen to all of those and ultimately we all want the same thing we all want to see the football club progress we all want to see the football club improve and listening to to fans and genuine feedback is is a hugely important part of that process so there absolutely is no um no issues with us taking what, what, any... what was the issue there what went wrong with the sports club um i mean again i don't think it's one that we can go into specifics on this definitely isn't the, the time and the place for that where we are now with the supports club is that um, there has been a change in their their leadership, and so I think David Thomas has come in, hasn't he? He's a, a chair. Yeah, and, and that's extremely welcome. Dave's Dave's been brilliant since day one. Day one, we've we've had some regular communication for a period of time now, and he's genuinely supportive of the football club and wanting to make things better. And that's that's all we ask. And he has said, uh, so in in his statement, it's no secret that relationships between the football club and the sports club have soured to an unacceptable level and I will work tirelessly to put that right. So it, there's a will from the supporters club and, and there's a will from the the football club side to, to sort of bridge this perceived or, or apparent uh, divide. I think that divide's already been bridged. I mean, we've got two, two new fans directors that are on the board. Yeah. Um, we, we catch up regularly. I mean, I've had communication with two or three different people from the supporters club this morning. Um, so there, there's no issues with the supports club at all at, at this stage, and we don't anticipate there being any in the future. Um, I'm actually travelling up on the the fans coach to Scunthorpe in uh, next week. I think it's next Tuesday. Um, so I'll be travelling up on on their coaches, and a few of the other staff members here are, are coming with me. So um, yeah, there's no there's no ongoing issues with the supports club at all. So that's all been healed, dealt with. Yep, and uh, moved on. You talk about Rovers DNA, Rovers being a family club, how that's seen in the city and outside the city. The appointment of Joey Barton probably did um, divide the fan base um, for those that wanted him in, seeing him as a kind of somebody who would come in and shake things up, a, a fresh pair of eyes, you know, obviously a um, a well-known football, you know, ex-Premier League player, also, you know, has a done a lot of work for Tall Sport, has a sort of profile in the game. Others, because of some of the off-the-field issues with with um, Joey Barton, were feeling that he didn't fit into the DNA of, of the family club. We've obviously, we can't talk about um, uh, any cases, but there's obviously been two court cases, one imminent and one decided that's happened since he's been at the football club. Um, does Joey Barton fit into that DNA family club kind of culture of Bristol Rovers? I mean, again, all I can comment on on Joe is my exchanges with him since he's been here and he's been first class, really. Um, he's uh, he's extremely passionate about 
the project that we're working on. He wants to make things better. He wants to make improvements. He wants to drive standards and um, and see those improvements across all areas of the football club. And ultimately, that's all 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 of us want is to to see that the club move forward and, and get better. So. Um, I think he's he's done a, a great job so far in terms of lots of the aspects that that many fans won't see. Um, the training ground is is a a brilliant environment. Um, the lads are all really really close. Um, they have a good time, and the standards of every member of staff down there is is of a higher level than than I've ever seen in my time during since, the club. since you've been at Rovers, yeah. Yeah, by by a long way. Um, oh, really? Are you? Yeah, genuinely. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and and genuinely, and I don't say this lightly. Um, lots of the the operations at the training ground are at Premier League level. Many of the members of staff down there operate to those standards, and um, I'd be amazed if you if you went to another club in League Two and saw an operation like what we've got at, mm. at the quarters. It's really something for us all to be proud of, um, and I have no doubt that over the coming weeks and months we'll start to see the the effect and the benefit of that on the pitch on the field obviously when he did come in the you know he's very confident isn't he and he he'll he'll kind of say what I you know what I can do what I can achieve he's on the front foot bearing in mind we had some of this off the field kind of you know some some fans being a bit kind of uh suspicious or sort of negative about him coming in had he sort of hit the ground running on the field, some of that may have dropped away. But obviously, we ended up becoming relegated. Rovers are now in 16th in the league uh, on probably one of the higher budgets in, in League Two. Do you do you see his on-the-field Do you see his on the field stuff as, as a success thus far? Um, I mean, I don't think you can judge that until the end of the season. Ultimately, the aim for us this season was to get promoted and... We've got lots of games in hand and still got the opportunity. You think to that's do still that. possible? Hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, okay. We're. I think we got three. I think we're nine points out to playoffs with three games in hand. So, um, it's definitely achievable. We have won the last two games in the league. We've had, I think, ten or eleven players return to the first team squad in the last week or so from, from injury. Um, so we've we've had a. It's been a tough start to the season. I think everyone's aware of that. We've had. Um, lots of different challenges to overcome. I think we signed 20 players last summer and it takes time for everybody to bed in. And I think we've very rarely had a full complement or anywhere near a full complement of our, our kind of preferred starting eleven available at any given time. Um, and it feels like now we've, we've really turned a corner. Um, Things have picked up in the last few weeks. As there is a, and, 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 and on that, I think you said earlier in the interview that when things on the field or you know, in any football club, improve and, and results pick up. That tends to bring people with you. Or is is it, it, I went down. I've been for a couple of weeks, but before there was there was a little bit of a toxic atmosphere in in the in the in the stadium. My understanding is from people I've spoken to that that's been changing week on week in the last few weeks. Beginning to the atmosphere is beginning to be lifted a bit more. Yeah, I mean we can feel that. And I think in the whole building really over the last last eight weeks in particular I felt a kind of continual change in terms of the the feel of the place and what we're looking to achieve I think everybody's pulling in the same direction everybody has a part to play whether that's Joey whether that's his staff the players the staff we have at the men um the supporters everybody can play a really big part in in the next journey of or next part of the journey for for this football club and I think it's really important that everybody knows that they have a part to play 
Um, obviously, we, we won the game. Won the game Saturday uh, against Hartlepool two nil. We didn't play particularly well, um, and we haven't been doing that recently. We've actually been the opposite, where we've we've played really well in games and not got got the points we deserved. So, ultimately. We need to have a, a really good second half of the season. We need to put together a big run of results and mm. positive performances are preferable. <laughs> They're not necessarily required if we're winning games like we did that weekend. Um, but we've still we've still got a really good chance. And if we get the fans behind us and, and keep playing the way that we're playing, I think we got we can have a really good go. And, you know, Rovers have been through quite a few managers in the, in the last 10 years. Do you feel now that, you've got the right one that that will be at the club for certainly the the near future in the next sort of two, three, four years to, to kick the club on. Yeah, I mean that's that's what we hope. I don't I don't think any club who changes there's probably a couple of minor exceptions, Chelsea being one, but clubs that change managers regularly generally don't don't have success. Um, I was watching the class of two, class of ninety two documentary last night, and I think they had a very mm. similar season to us last year, where they had lots of turnover of managers, and and ultimately were unable to fulfil their potential because of that. And I think we felt the same. So continuity is really important, and having the time to to build something, and get the right people in the building to have success is really important. So um, that's what we're looking to achieve. Do you feel, in some regards, if you remove any of the negativity that we've seen in terms of just pure football and ambition. Joey Barton is very ambitious as a manager. Do you think Bristol Rovers is a stepping stone for him? Uh, potentially. I mean, you'll have to ask him that question yourselves, but I think ultimately the only way this can be a stepping stone for Joey is if he has success on the pitch. And every conversation I've I've had with him today is... He's been really tuned in and passionate about wanting us to improve and wanting us to be operating at a high standard and wanting to play in a certain way and 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 ultimately to entertain the fans and to get results. So um, if he can do that and that means he ends up moving on to to a club higher up the football pyramid, then then that's great for everyone as far as I'm concerned. It's beneficial say. for the football club as well as yeah, players, ultimately it? in the football department if if players and managers are leaving to go to a high level and that means we've been successful so um that that for me should be treated as a success and, and not yeah. as a, a negative i think you know when you came into the club and, and you had to have some difficult conversations and make some some hard decisions to move some people on that kind of happened a little bit when joey barton came into the football club one thing that i've never been quite clear about is what kind of happened with the sort of fallout of the role of Tommy Ridlington at the club. Obviously he's now left. He was the director of football and there was some kind of, what, what, what happened? Uh, I don't think anything happened in particular. It's not a a moment to pinpoint an incident of any kind. The personality clash between them. No, I I don't even think it was that necessarily. I think ultimately we've, we've had a change of, of strategy. Tommy's left recently um, and uh, he leaves with, with all of our best wishes. But it was decided that in terms of the football club and how we wanted to operate, we wanted to go down a different path in terms of recruitment and we feel that would give us the best chance of finding the right players and securing the right players moving forward. Just a few things to touch on. In terms of, I know you've just appointed a new head of media, uh, Andy Downey, kind of social media and the kind of videos and uh, sort of interacting with, with an online audience is something that's increasingly become really important in in football clubs. 
Um, we've seen the success of Bristol City with their gifts thing that enabled them to have a bit of a national profile. And I think they managed to get a shirt sponsor about four times the amount that they had before. Why is it important for any kind of, uh, I don't know, my, my, my uncle's listening sort of dinosaur football fans that can't really understand this kind of stuff. Why is it important to have a sort of strong digital imprint online for a football club? Well, ultimately, we need to we need to meet the needs of the fan base, and I think that's one in terms of um, that repeating itself. Obviously, as society changes, we need to match those needs, and I think um, there is a, a need now for people to want information all the time. Um, mm-hmm. So we need to provide that. I think we need to communicate better. Obviously, this is one way of us doing that, but we need to communicate better across lots of different channels. Um, Do you accept often- that? Because there have been criticisms of some of the messaging uh, over particular quite delicate incidents in the last couple of years do you, do you accept that some of the some of the comms and the messaging could be better absolutely yeah um and and ultimately that's the aim moving forward now obviously i've only been in the role a few weeks but um communicating better is a core part of our strategy moving forward um you might have seen on social media i, I write some notes for the program every game and we're now sharing yeah. those notes through my channels, which hopefully will will get that message out to a wider group of fans. But beyond that, I think, um, like you mentioned before, being very approachable, I think it's really important so we can we can deal with any any issues and answer any questions at source. I'm I'm always accessible and I don't don't mind doing that. So um, uh, I think that's really important. But I don't think anyone would I don't think anyone would challenge you on that either. I do think even people that old perhaps some older fans who, who sort of hanker a bit more for more some of the sort of tradition traditional voices and faces um i i have you know as a journalist you do watch and i keep my eye on social media you do tend to be the person that responds to stuff online and sometimes even if that's critical you do you do you do like to put yourself in that situation to, to, yeah, I mean, to, to be a voice and answer these kind of queries yeah it's not it's not a, a vanity project at all the the point of it is about being open and accessible answering questions and giving responses obviously that sometimes those responses aren't necessarily what what people want to hear but it's it's being open and honest about where we are and the rationale behind decisions that have been made so i don't mind answering questions or taking on board feedback or even challenging some of the comments that we get that, that may not be accurate or in line with what we're looking to achieve so Will you still be able to do that in your new role, though? Do you have to? Have you got a sort of place a bit safer now, or do you have to delegate that a bit more I now that you're the chief? To, I don't think I need to play safer. I think I'll still be open and approachable. But ultimately, what we're looking to achieve is is uh, to create a team of people here that are all in tuned into what we're looking to do. Um, yeah. And ultimately, that means being open and communicating properly and providing feedback and providing information. I think you'll probably see that already through some of the some of the hires that we've made and mm. the changes we made. Pete Weymouth, in particular, is obviously on Twitter. He's the main point of contact in the shop and is doing a lot with the ticketing. And he's providing regular updates to his own channels and and ask, answering questions for fans now. Which ultimately, a lot of that burden has landed on me. Um, yeah, I, I do obviously need to be more strategic about how I use my time, and I won't be able to to answer as many people as I would have done previously, purely just from a, a time perspective and an output perspective. But I think what we will create, and and ultimately we're going through another restructure at the moment. But the view of that is to try and make sure that we've got the right people with the right skills in the building, and 
um, you would have also probably seen that we're, we're hiring for a, a videographer that will come in and yeah, be full right. time as part of that department. Again, that's part of enabling us to tell those stories and engage with supporters and give them a bit more insight into what we're doing here. It doesn't necessarily mean the standard match day content that you might see, but yeah. um, like I said, there's some really good work going on at the training ground. And you can communicate that message directly now. Exactly. It's very different than the traditional relationship between football clubs and the media, which was, you know, a, a press officer and you would have to tell the story through the press. You, you can kind of bypass that. I know that's still important to do, but you can just effectively talk directly to fans. Yeah, and I, and I think it's important that fans have a better understanding as to what's going on in the football club day to day. And I think we can do that a lot better as well without without breaching any of the inner sanctuary that is, is a football club training ground. So that's one of the aims. That's what we're looking to achieve. Every member of that executive committee will have some real clear targets and goals that we're looking to achieve that hopefully will make sure that everything we do has the same value shining through and the same standards across the board, mm-hmm. um, regardless of what department they're in. That you, you said about continuity, and I think that that's probably... And I think you probably can see that that's one thing that perhaps Bristol Rovers haven't always had in, you know, for, for quite some time anyway, but certainly in recent years. Now that I guess you're able to to have a strategic eye of who is, you know, who is working where and what the priorities are and how the kind of strategy strategy looks. Do you see and, and hope for a period of more consolidation of stability because I think that's what Bristol Rovers needs is is, is to become a stable football club where people know their jobs they know what direction they're going in and people are singing from the same hymn sheet yeah I mean um, so ultimately that's the goal of the restructure is to create some stability and um, clarity in terms of roles and and responsibilities Um, I think there's been some gaps in the past and and because of that um, some of the lines have got blurred in terms of where people's responsibilities lie. So mm-hmm. through this change, I think everybody in the building will have a really clear understanding of where they fit and what benefit they bring. Yeah. Uh, and they'll only be in the building if they're bringing a benefit, which I think helps from a starting perspective. And that um, includes if you have a difference of opinion, um, because I think some people, a lot of people um, see you as the the kind of face and I think of the voice of the, modern side of the football club there will be other fans that see you as being the sort of continuity candidate candidate that you know the internal appointment perhaps wells preferred appointment um because you you, you know you're you're not gonna gonna rock the boat with him um i mean uh while and i have a great relationship and i obviously don't think i would have had this opportunity if we didn't um but that doesn't mean that we don't have doesn't a- make you a yes man not at all. No, I mean we've got a really open and honest relationship. We speak every day. Um, I don't just tell him the things that he wants to hear. We 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 speak openly and honestly about how the football club's operating and how we can improve it. So you um, can challenge him and give a different view, and he's responsive to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and ultimately, a difference of opinion is healthy across the board, and that's not just in my relationship with Wild, but also with the executive team that, that we're creating. I'll expect that within them is for them to have different different ideas, differences of opinion. And and ultimately, that, that debate is healthy to make sure that we're moving in the right direction and doing things in the right way. So, um, yeah, absolutely. How do you think he is seen now by the fan base? Um, I, I think 
largely positively and uh, rightly so. Um, like I said, the, this football club would not have been able to survive the period we've been through without him. Um, Do you think fans we, forget that? I think so. I think people take it for granted. I think people don't don't really appreciate because it's it's almost unquantifiable for most people the level of investment that's been put in here and lots of it you don't really see is there a figure on that do we know a figure uh well i mean we're in excess of 20 million now and it's obviously rising all the time and the the training ground really is the first thing of significance the club's ever built i mean even beyond that just funding the the playing squad is is a significant investment on an annual basis that we wouldn't be able to sustain without his support. I think we said it, it was mentioned in one of the letters that, that went out over COVID. I mean, just with COVID alone, if every fan had to fund the club through that that pandemic, it would have cost an extra £1,000 per person just for the costs incurred through COVID. Yeah. And that doesn't include all the other things that we've done to develop the training ground and everything beyond that. So, so is that frustration perhaps coming from Obviously, you know that the success kind of peaked a bit um, with with Daryl Clark, and it hasn't been great sort of on the field since. And as as we said earlier, that affects you know perceptions and attitudes towards football clubs. But do you think some of the frustration is is around the expectation of the stadium quicker than it's come? Uh, probably. I mean, ultimately, all these things take time. Um, I mean, I think it took Brentford thirteen years to get their stadium, so. It's it's a long process, but ultimately, what we do have is is a long term view. It's looking to build the football club to a point where it can be sustained for generations, mm-hmm. where we can continue to improve in every area. And um, I think we're at a position now where we've got the stability to really kick on and put the building box in place that will mean that the club can thrive for generations to come. What would happen um, if you pulled the plug, though? The club won't be able to to survive without his investment. Um, is so, that a dangerous situation to be in? I think that's modern football. I think most nice most clubs are being a, a similar position. There's very few clubs at this stage, and when I say very few, you're probably talking about less than less than ten. Yeah, that would be able to survive. Well, it'd be the same as City, wouldn't it? If, if the Lansdowne's pulled out at City would be the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, our job really is to is to try and make sure he didn't go that <laughs> limit the requirement for financial investment outside of our natural sources that ultimately makes us more sustainable but there's obviously significant challenges of that particularly in the current stadium that we're in but ultimately that's what we have to work to achieve how do we increase our income how do we reduce our costs how do we become more efficient and finding answers to those problems ultimately makes the football club more sustainable and that can often be the financial sustainability not just specifically to do with football you know if you have your own stadium you've got to look at Ashton Gate they seem to be doing quite a lot of you know big most of them are are kind of old hat musicians but like Elton John and stuff but they seem to be doing quite a lot of music kind of events don't they and concerts and hiring of you know, for for functions and stuff like that. It's all that other stuff that kind of exists parallel to, to football in many regards. But I might be in saying that, that football in a kind of big club that has its own stadium, you know, say in the Premier League, that the actual money that's made directly from gate receipts is, is a lot less than money is made elsewhere. Well, at Premier League level, their biggest source of investment is broadcasting revenues by yeah. a significant amount. Um, and that exists to a lesser extent in the Championship. Once you get to League 1 and League 2, most clubs are far more reliant on 
investment from ticketing revenue mm-hmm. um, in particular. And obviously, the more you can make your business viable on the days when you don't have fans in, the the better you'll be. But again, the, the MEM um, provides a certain struggles in that we've got limited space available and the space we do have available isn't isn't suitable for certain types of events so we have to be a bit more creative as to how we work and how we operate but that yeah. is still a focus for us moving forward um we've seen the benefits of some of the changes we've made particularly in the bar areas behind the goal yeah. that have improved the the quality of those spaces and and now we're seeing them rented out a lot more regularly um but i think we can look at that and see if there's anything else we can do within the stadium to help improve our, our viability moving forward so this on the field and off the field strategy, we'll, we'll wrap it up, Tom. Do you have a target on the field where you would like to be um, in 10 years' time? Do you see, well, um, realistically, uh, Bristol Bay was being a, a championship club under your watch? Yeah, that's the aim The aim for us across the board. If you speak to anybody at the training ground, their aim is to, to work us towards getting in the championship. Um, we're under no illusions as to how difficult a task that is um, and ultimately it will take time. Um, it's not a short-term goal, it's a, a mid-term goal but ultimately it's achievable within the resource that we've got. So um, that that is the aim. And under Joey Barton? Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's uh, Like I said, he's completely tuned in to that as a goal and uh, as long as we have success on the pitch there's no reason why we can't get there. Thanks Tom. Good to chat and uh, thanks yeah. for your questions and all your support. Um, yeah, good, all the best, mate. Good luck and um, yeah, thank you very much for, for giving up your time. We appreciate it. Appreciate that. Cheers, Neil. Cheers. Many thanks to the Chief Executive of Bristol Rovers Football Club, Tom Gorridge, for talking to us this week on Bristol Unpacked. Next week, we'll be back with a brand new guest and another fantastic topic. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. And if you do want to become a member of the Cable and join Bristolian members all across the city, chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more.